where we were this past week, we saw what it is that Solomon, the author, was writing, and he said something that I've always found very, very interesting and counter to what many of us would inherently believe. In verse 18, he had said, For in much wisdom is much grief, and he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. Essentially, the more you know, the more that you know. Right? As a child, the world is very simple. When we're young, when we're without much knowledge, everything is very, very simple. It's very easy to understand. We, we see the good things, and we believe that's all that it is. Um, how many of you, we'll do a poll, show of hands, Baptist style, okay? How many of you guys would say, I was more optimistic as a child than I am now? How many of you are more optimistic about the day-to-day -day affairs in the world as a child than you are now? Because you didn't know any better, right? I grew up believing that the, the president, whoever inhabits that office, or any senator, any representative, any single political figure, I truly believed as a young child, and my father constantly told me the opposite, but I still believe this, that they absolutely had my best interest as an American at heart. Now, by your laughter, I can tell you guys know better. We know differently. And I always believed that anything bad that a person ever did, it was simply a mistake. Not as if, because of course, as a child, I would sit there and think, surely nobody wants to hurt another person. Of course, no one would ever intend to hurt somebody. That would be awful. But then what happens is we grow up, we interact, we experience things, and we realize so much more. As we've grown, as you have grown in your journey, as, as you've understood who God is more and more, are you not more grieved by different things that you see in the world day to day? Do you not, because you know who God is, you understand his holiness and his beauty and his goodness, do you not then get grieved by the awful things that you see far more? Because you know that it is not the way that it should be. Solomon, with all of this wisdom and so much knowledge and his observation and his pursuit of all of these things, he says that in knowledge there is great travail. And travail was often linked biblically to uh, the process of giving birth to a child, which none of us here would say that's a very easy, a very uh, pain-free, a very casual experience. It requires a great deal of work in order to do so. And so we've seen him throughout the whole first chapter. We largely see Solomon sitting back. We see him building this watchtower at a level of observation where he looks at everything that he sees around him and what was his conclusion? All of it is vanity. It's futile. It's meaningless. It does not have value. So he's tried observation all throughout chapter 1. He, he's observed things. He's thought greatly upon these things. Verse 16, I communed with mine own heart. And yet at the end, he comes to the conclusion that all is vanity. And so here this morning in chapter 2, we're going to see him alter his approach and do different things that he is now going to engage in, different things that he is going to do. Because it's not enough to just sit back and look. I've observed all around me, and this is not working. So now I'm going to produce. I'm going to engage. I'm going to do things to give myself meaning. Let's read Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 down through verse 11. It says, I said in mine heart, Go to now, I will prove thee with mirth. Therefore enjoy pleasure, and behold, this also is vanity. 
I said of laughter, it is mad, and of mirth, what doeth it? I sought in mine heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting mine heart with wisdom, and to lay hold on folly, till I might see that what was good for the sons of men, which they should do under the heaven all the days of their life. I made me great works, I builded me houses, I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards, and I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruits. I made me pools of water, to water therewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. I got me servants and maidens, and had servants born in my house. Also I had great possessions of great and small cattle, above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered me also silver and gold, and the peculiar treasure of kings, and of the provinces. I get me men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor. And this was my portion of all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. Let's pray. God, we, we thank you for this time that you have given to us. We thank you for the incredible opportunity and privilege to be able to come into your house, to gather as your people, to sing songs that, that praise you for who you are and all that you've done, that we were so confidently able to sing, On Christ the solid rock I stand, that all other ground is sinking sand, that there is no foundation apart from you, that anything outside of you, as we continue to see Throughout each and every study here, so far in Ecclesiastes, we see that anything that does not have you in it is vanity, it is futile, and it is meaningless. God, I pray that as we study out these 11 verses, as we walk through what it is that, that your word communicates to us, I pray that we would be attentive and that we would have ears prepared to listen and that we would truthfully and honestly engage in, in all that you bring forth here this morning. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The first verse, we see Solomon doing something that at times we've seen David do throughout the Psalms. Solomon, or the preacher here, he's urging himself to action in the way that he begins in the first verse of chapter 2. I said in mine heart. He's urging himself to this action where he is having to willfully tell his heart to do something. Have you ever had to essentially tell, when you don't want to get up off the couch or out of the bed, you just got really, really comfortable. You don't want to get up. And you have to sit there, exhale, and say, okay, self, get up. You got to get moving. And I usually sit back and say, but I don't have to get moving. If I'm making myself do it, I can also make myself stay here. But I think we've all had times where we've had to say to ourselves, okay, self, I need you to get up and go do something. I don't want to go do this, but I need to get up and actually do it. Here Solomon is doing the same thing. He's saying, he's communicating to his heart. Have you ever communicated to your heart? 
thought to yourself, okay, here's how we need to feel. Here's how we need to be working together. It's when David is in great grief over a traumatic loss, something that has harmed him greatly in his heart and in his soul, and he's telling his heart, but God is still good. The reminder to himself of though I am sad and in grief, heart, God is still good. God is still loving, though I don't know exactly why or what. I know who God is. And sometimes we have to reconvince ourselves of these things. We have to tell ourselves these truths. Here, Solomon is going to be doing a similar thing. He is speaking to himself, saying, I said in mine heart, Go to now, I will prove thee with mirth, or uh, mirth being amusement. Therefore, enjoy pleasure. So now he said, okay, observing was not enough. I can't simply sit back, observe the world around me, see what everyone else has done, consider the monotonous routine of life and find meaning. Now, what is his solution? To go out and to enjoy pleasure. He's now said observing is not enough. Now I have to engage in this. And so for me to find meaning in what it is in, the, in this monotonous, this routine, this circle and cycle of life, I now am going to try a different path. Observation didn't bring meaning, but perhaps a pursuit of pleasure is going to do so. And so here we're seeing all of these verses, Solomon setting out to try to prove that pleasure will bring meaning to him. But even at the end of verse 1, he already tells you his conclusion, does he not? I've sought after these things, and guess what I have found? That also is vanity. Here, this is a single-hearted pursuit after what it is that pleasure is going to bring us. And I think we can look at this and say, if we're familiar with the life of Solomon, we'll say, yes, he absolutely engaged in a single-hearted, a sole purpose for a time of pleasure. And he even recounts many of these things here in these later verses, especially in verse 8. But think about this very same idea. Is this not the idea often promoted everywhere that we turn, throughout advertisements, throughout music, throughout media? The idea that if it feels good, then do it. If it makes you feel good, then it is a good thing, so go for it. Because guess what? You only live once. Throw yourselves at the altar of pleasure, and there you will find satisfaction and meaning. Consider the movies that often are the most popular. Consider the music that is often the most popular. I can assure you that many of the songs that we sang this morning are not on the, the top of the charts on public radio. Would you agree to that? You're not, I'm not hearing high school kids running through the halls or at basketball practice singing about the solid rock. That's not the case. It's not popular. And we talked about conforming this morning in a Sunday school. I hope that as we walk through the Sunday school as well, side note, you're pairing these different things with what we see in Ecclesiastes, that all of this is all going in a very similar track. They're not completely detached from one another. But here, his pursuit is great. I simply observed all of these things, the, these ideas under the sun. I've seen how the sun comes up and down. Everything is routine. But you know what's maybe not routine? Pleasure. Maybe I just need more pleasure in my life. Maybe I just need to uh, be unbridled and unhindered in my pursuit of pleasure. This is so much of what popular movies tend to be centered around, right? It's sex. It's drugs. 
It's all of these other things which are simply a physical pleasure for every single person. Why is it that so many movies have been popular about a college lifestyle where it's just routine drinking, partying, um, sex, all of these different things? Why is it that that's so popular? Because there's physical pleasure based in each and every single part of it. But have you also noticed the great despair of so many of those things? Perhaps for many of us, we can also look back and say, hey, that was maybe just a few years ago for me, so I absolutely understand the context of that. Where for many of us, we constantly are pursuing pleasure in all sorts of various forms and various avenues. But you notice the great despair because often with, with this, this culture of, of the partying and of so many of these things, this unhindered and unbridled um, debauchery, essentially, it's not for celebration. It's often to forget things. What often leads a person so deeply into alcohol, it's the desire to forget or to be numb and to ignore what the reality actually is. Um, those of you that don't care about basketball, which should be none of you, thank you. Toronto Raptors just slayed the evil giant of the Golden State Warriors. We can all be thankful for this. The empire is done. Okay? They are just celebrating their NBA championship, right? They, they win it. They're happy. They're celebrating all of these things. Do you think at any point that as they're celebrating and probably getting a little out of control with their celebrating, but do you think they have a desire to forget or are they actually celebrating something? They're absolutely celebrating stuff. They're excited. It's something positive, and they're celebrating. They're, they're joyful over something that they have accomplished. They're not seeking to ignore and to forget all of these things. But yet so often the, the partying and, and alcoholism is largely an attempt to forget and to ignore and to remove yourself from what is actually taking place. And we'll get back to that in a minute. But this has been the most consistent um, alternative to faith that the world presents is instead of faith, here's what you should pursue. You should pursue pleasure. Fulfill everything that you desire, right? Consume and enjoy. This is all that there is. You're number one as man, so go get everything you've ever wanted to have. That is the idea that's promoted, and this is also the alternative that Solomon here is presenting. The very thing that we see routinely now is the exact path that Solomon himself was following. And there's a name for this, and it's called hedonism. How many of you are familiar with the word? Okay, some of you guys are. I'm going to give you a quick definition. Defines the ultimate meaning or supreme good in life as acquiring pleasure and avoiding pain. So this is the worldview. This is the viewpoint that the, the best possible thing, the ultimate goal in life, the supreme good, is to acquire as much pleasure as possible and to avoid as much pain as possible. That that is your single-minded pursuit. An unbridled quest for pleasure, which he himself is even saying, therefore, enjoy pleasure. But he concludes, this is also vanity. Now, even those apart from, uh, if we were to remove Solomon from this, even if we were to remove scripture from this, having the very secular uh, philosopher, the secular viewpoint, they have even themselves realized that this is absolutely the case. It's called the hedonistic paradox. Paradoxes aren't really great all the time. 
But there's two parts to this, and I alluded to it two weeks ago. It says that if you seek pleasure, this is the first part, if you seek pleasure and it eludes you, then you are doomed to a life of frustration. This is your single purpose and goal in life, is to have as much pleasure as possible. You have a goal of this pleasure, and if you cannot get it, you will live a life of frustration. On the other hand, if you are seeking pleasure and you find it, you are doomed to a life of boredom. Because what else is there to attain? I've already got what I've wanted my whole life. Consider your life for a minute. Those goals that you set out, why are people so restless when they finally achieved a life goal? They achieve a goal they've set out for so much of their life to do, they finally attain it, and then what's left? They go, I don't know who I am anymore. It's essentially every professional athlete. They retire, they go away. Their identity for so long was a sport. They can no longer play the sport. And this is why they're led into drug abuse, into alcohol abuse, into suicide, because they have tied their identity to a game. For many of us, it's a job. We tie our identities to a job or the way that we can serve and help one another. Well, guess what? What happens when the person that you serve is no longer there? If that's your identity and that's taken away, you have nothing left. It's restless. This is why there is no amount of, of drug or of, of sex or of drink or any of these things that will ever truly satisfy a person because you can never actually have enough of it. And when you get it, you say, mm, I'm bored with it. So you have to keep adding more. And if you can never get it, you're frustrated because you've never met the goal you set for yourself. Even those that do not have a Christian perspective come to these conclusions, that a life simply after pleasure cannot satisfy a person. They're either left wanting or they're left being bored. But so often this is what we're taught, right? And all the, the commercials where in the marketing and in the advertisements, it's you're not satisfied with your life, try this new iPhone. You have to get a new one. Your old phone doesn't, it still works, but go ahead and get the new one. You're not satisfied because this one, the picture is just a little bit better. Are you satisfied with your car? Does it get you everywhere that you need to go? Well, that's great, but you could be more satisfied. You could get to that same place more better, right? And I say it that way to show the absurdity of what it is. This is every advertisement. It keeps throwing pleasure in your face every single time. In the Sunday school, is the verse that Christina read from 1 John, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life, these are the things that we are constantly being attacked with. How often at Super Bowl, uh, do I watch the Super Bowl commercials and go, you know what, Doritos do sound really good right now. And a cherry Coke? Oh, my goodness. This is, it, it works every single time because that's what I want. We understand all of these things. It's constantly throwing in your face, seek after pleasure, pursue pleasure. If you get it, then you will be satisfied. Let's stop for a second and ask this question in and of ourselves. Have you been completely satisfied in every area of life because you have pursued pleasure? Because there's times where we did and something changed because we found it meaningless. We found it we found vanity in it. We found it was futile. We, didn't, we found that it wasn't really satisfactory. Where for so long we looked forward to a specific thing and then we finally got it and said, you know what, I don't really feel fulfilled right now. But I thought this would complete me. 
for many, you, you grow up thinking, well, as long as I can just, once I get married, as long as I find a spouse, then I'm going to be completely fulfilled in and of myself. Then you get married and you realize, you know what? I'm not perfectly fulfilled as a person. Especially if God's not in that marriage. And so we continue to see this concept. Again, everything that Solomon is saying is all of this completely devoid, completely detached from God being present in this. It's all under the sun. It's simply the earth. Now, I want to contrast this for a minute because I think it's important. And again, this is something that often is not mentioned within the context of churches, but I think it's important. We cannot then overreact to this point and say that pleasure is bad. We cannot come away and say any experience of any pleasure at all is going to be inherently bad or sinful or wrong. But that's often the counter, right? Because we want so badly for, for our children and for those that we love to not pursue only physical pleasures in all of these different forms and fashions that we then we tend to argue so strongly against it that we say, so avoid it all. Completely avoid everything. Pleasure is bad. But it's not. Who, who gave you the ability to experience something good? God did. God absolutely did. All of these things being within a proper context. He is the one who has given us the capacity to experience pleasure. He is the one that continuously talks about us experiencing joy and happiness and gladness and all of these things. But he has also created you with more than just a body. Here as we see what Solomon is outlining throughout these verses, and you can continue to look through verses 1 through 11, all of these were the physical pleasures that he was pursuing. And that's often where we focus a lot of our attention. But there's so much more than just the physical, right? He's given us a spirit. He's given us a mind. How often do you entertain pleasures of the mind, of thinking upon the things of God, as opposed to pursuing physical pleasures? Because a large amount of our life is often seeking physical pleasures rather than anything spiritual, rather than anything that is in our minds. He's created us with more than just a body. We're not purely meant to be these superficial beings where all we understand is the physical. We, as Christians, understand the importance of the mind. We, as Christians, understand the importance of our spirit. Think for a minute about your happiest moments in your life. Think about what are the happiest moments that you can actually think of in your life. How many of them are pleasures that were physical for you? Because I'm going to largely step out on a limb and say they're not. The memories, the moments, the things that you most uh, joy in and take great pleasure in were not the physical pleasures. You're thinking of accomplishments. You're thinking of not just your things that you've accomplished of yourself, but you would think about the accomplishments of others, especially within a family. You think of so many things that have nothing to do with a physical pleasure at all. So consider where it is that we are to be finding this joy. These are accomplishments. These are things that are emotional or spiritual or mental. Simply knowing that you have somebody that you trust is not a physical pleasure. It's a very emotional support. It's a mental, it's a spiritual component. How much more meaningful is that? To know that you have somebody that you can trust. We'll all take a hug from somebody, well, from some people. 
Okay. Would you prefer a hug or would you prefer having the understanding that you can absolutely trust the other person? Anybody can hug you. Not everybody is someone you can trust. You, you look back at your mem- the memories that you have in life. All the, look at the home videos. I, know, I don't know if people still do this anymore, right? All the old home videos, the memories that people talk about, especially within our family, that my brothers and I talk about. And no point is it a physical pleasure where it's something that we experienced. It's an accomplishment. It's something like a situation that occurred and where you're just laughing. You remember the silly emotional memories. This is the pursuit that he is saying is simply purely physical. And that is where it is that he's engaging. But we know something far, far different. And he is going to get there at a later point in Ecclesiastes. And though we have said that pleasure is not bad, Here's one of the problems that we have. Comparing this to where we were in the Sunday school this morning, one of the problems is that sin is also pleasurable, is it not? Is there not also pleasure in sin? Why else would a person sin if it was not enjoyable? Why would you sin if there wasn't pleasure in it? We often sin because we think that if we commit the sin, then we're going to be happy. Well, if I do this, it'll make me happy at least for this time, so, so I'm going to go ahead and do it because I think I'll be happy. But also the opposite is true. We say, if I don't do this, then I won't be happy. I have to do this to be happy because if I don't, I will not have any happiness. Consider all of these physical pleasures. This is the great struggle that he is now wrestling through. And this is where he's confused. This is where people tend to get confused. We often hear um, all the pleasures of life and just say, if you can have all of these things, then you're going to be satisfied. Just continue to pursue all of it. Everything is going to be great. The great confusion is that there is no happiness in sin. There can't be any happiness. It is an intrinsic part of how God has made us that we do not find true happiness in our sin. You can't. What is found in sin other than despair in the end? other than it being futile, other than it being meaningless. There is nothing left to be found there because we have not been made in such a way to, in, to, to have such a great happiness and satisfaction in our sin. This is why Solomon so consistently throughout all that he has laid out, he's, he's had, he had all of the women, he had all of the money, he had all the riches, he had all the success, he built all of these incredible things, right? Everything that we're told to pursue for satisfaction. And he looks at it all, looks around him, and just says, you know what? This is worthless. This is meaningless. It has no value at all. Contrast that with what we constantly pursue each and every day. Examine yourself. What am I pursuing each and every day? Am I pursuing things that Solomon here is listing out? And then also take this contrast of trying to find happiness in sin with joy in the contentment of what Christ has done that we saw in Philippians. The paradox of if if all you want is pleasure and you get it, you're going to be bored. And if you don't get it, guess what? You're going to be restless and you're going to be frustrated. Pair that with what Paul continues to talk about in Philippians of content. The joy of knowing who it is that Christ is, knowing his Father, knowing the work that Christ has already accomplished and fulfilled, and the actual contentment that comes with that. And notice whether he's brought high or brought low, learning to be content in all things. Where there is no pleasure to be found in any of Paul's life, 
Yet he's writing, I still have joy and lasting contentment in these things. Notice the completely different worldviews here. Because sin can bring pleasure for a season, but it can never bring happiness. Verse 3, we see uh, this deepening approach where he, he's looked around all these things and says that he's going to have to pursue these pleasures. He found that to be vanity. Uh, verse 2, he said of laughter, it is mad. And of amusement or entertainment, what doeth it? These things are also fruitless. Verse 3, I sought in mine heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting mine heart with wisdom until I hold on folly, till I might see that which was good for the sons of men, which they should do under the heaven all the days of their life. Let's not be quick to read this and say, ha, see, wine is bad. Let's take this to understand what he's saying. It is something that God has given, but also notice the great severity and the great wisdom that much, much must be exercised with this. He says, I sought in my heart to give myself unto wine. There's the problem. He's giving himself over to the wine. He's giving himself unto these things. This is the, the slave language or language of giving a prisoner over for a sentence, of giving somebody over to now serve underneath this now as the master. It's the same thing we see in Romans 1, where a person continues to suppress the truth of God, continues to rebel against God. And what does it say three different times? God gives them over. And it's to themselves, to their sin, giving them over to these things. He essentially says, I'm going to give you what you want. And so here we see the same thing where Solomon says, okay, sought in my heart to give myself unto wine. And he sets out to see what it is that is good for the sons of men to do. He's sitting here and says, okay, I've tried all of these pleasures and that didn't work. I tried laughter about these things and laughter is mad. I tried to be entertained. I tried to be amused. And all of this is also folly. What purpose is there in doing it? So then I sought to give myself unto wine. And at the end of verse 3, to see what was good for the sons of men to do. So now he's left saying, okay, these are not the answers. So what is good then for man to do? Later in scripture in Micah 6, 8, we see do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. This is what God has deemed good for the sons to do. But Solomon is left finding a far, far different answer, and we'll quickly go through these things. Observation wasn't enough. Physical pleasures and, and laughter and entertainment wasn't enough. Wine wasn't enough. So now in verse 4 through 7, we're going to see him seeking satisfaction in his work projects, what it is that I can create. These first things were destructive. Now I'm going to construct something. I'm going to make things, and I'm going to do it publicly. I'm going to make all of these different things, and this is what it is that's going to truly bring happiness. It says, I made me great works. I builded me houses. I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards, and I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruits. I made me pools of water to water therewith the wood that bring forth trees. I got me servants and maidens and had servants born in my house. And I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. 
Do you see where he's seeking yet again to find all of the satisfaction? He's saying, I can make these beautiful things. I'm going to now engage in the arts, and I'm going to find satisfaction in the arts. Look at this garden that I can make. Look at these pools of water. Look at how all of these things are that I can achieve. And notice the language. He keeps saying, I made me gardens. He's making all of these things for himself in an attempt to prove to himself he can be satisfied in it. He had all of these things that he is building, yet this still did not bring happiness. Clearly showing a point that godless pleasures can only bring emptiness. That a pleasure without God is only going to continue to allow us to remain empty. We cannot fill ourselves up with so many earthly pleasures that we no longer see a need for God. But this is often how it is that we are born in our, the condition of our sinful state. We seek after these things because often God is our last option. Let's try everything else. We're going to try everything else before I ever pray to God about something. And then we realize we're wholly incapable and say, you know what? Maybe I should have prayed about it. Verse 8 through 10, he moves now from these godless pleasures into godless relationships with, with other people that are around him. And he enters into this thing. I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasure of kings in the provinces. I get me singers, men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and, and that of all sorts. So he says, look, I had all this money. I accrued all of these treasures I had a beautiful choir, men and women, beautiful choir singing. He had over, what, 700 concubines. He had all of these things that he is listing where everyone would say, look, he had the arts, he had the home, he had the women, he had the relationships, he had the money, he had everything. Yet he continues to find it leaving him empty. We see here that Solomon was essentially building for himself a, a garden of Eden, but it's one with no forbidden trees, and it's one where God would not dwell. Think about this for a minute. All of the world tells you, build yourself a garden where you have every pleasure possible that you could ever want, where you have the most beautiful things. You have all of this water. You have all this mansion. You have all of these things. This is often how we picture heaven, right? The Garden of Eden, except we forget that, um, you know, God's also going to be there. And maybe the, the purpose of heaven is not just for us to enjoy these pleasures of great comfort. But it is something far, far more. And it's only heaven because who's there? Because God's there. You know, it's the age-old question, would you still enjoy heaven if God wasn't there? For many Christians, the way that they understand it, they would say, you know, that's fine. And I also know that there's not golf or fishing in heaven, just as a brief aside. Just to attack two of you specific. But understanding here, Solomon, he, he's built all of this. He's constructed all of these things to where nothing is off limits. Everything is acceptable. Everything is pleasurable. It's removed God from the equation where he is now trying to set up his own Garden of Eden. No restrictions. No rules. Because again, the 700 concubines was not something that God was very happy with. And so here he goes and says, here is what we are going to do, all of these things, yet leaving God out of the equation. And his conclusion is what? It is meaningless. It is vanity. It is futile. It does not satisfy. Please hear these as words of wisdom 
Not only because it's the inspired word of God, but for some of us, we just want somebody who's experienced it. He experienced these things. He is giving an absolutely, perfectly inspired testimony of, I have experienced it, and it did not work. So what do we do with this? Are, are we cautioned by these things, or do we say, well, he probably just did a couple things along the way that were wrong. He needed this particular pleasure or experience. He needed this particular area that he left out. Because he says, had it all. And notice the pride in which he's writing here in verse 9 and 10. He says, so I was great. How many of you want to write to somebody? So I'm pretty great. And increased more than all of that were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Remember how much, notice how much he keeps reminding us how much better he was than everybody else before him. He, just, he, he, he wants to make this very, very clear. I was pretty awesome. Which makes us not like the guy very much. But he reminds us of all of these things. We understand pride goes before fall, that largely the fall of a leader is either a moral failure or pride. For Solomon, it was both. He didn't lack in wisdom. But here we see these two different failures, and then he continues, that I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all of my labor, and this was my portion of all my labor, his conclusion in verse 11, then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought. I mean, these are beautiful works, right? Magnificent, truly beautiful things that he has made, that he has done. And he looks at it all, and his conclusion is that all is vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. In closing, I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 12, a familiar parable where Jesus himself and, and I feel it would be remiss to not link us here to this point, but we see this continuing to even be played out in the time of Christ. Here's the parable of the rich fool who comes along, and Jesus is, is going to, to tell this story. But here, starting in verse 13 of Luke chapter 12, it says, And one of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. And he said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or divider over you? And he said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For a, man, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. Now stop for a second and think about verse 15. Is that also how you evaluate your life of not just simply basing it off of that which you possess, but knowing that when you had absolutely nothing, you had everything. I think about, well, I was going to say when Brittany and I didn't have much, but it's not as if we're just flourishing right now. But think about it. We're young. We're married in college. We don't really have much. We're struggling to live, struggling to do each and every little thing, right? Because we got married way too young. But it was wonderful. We were completely together. It was just us. We loved each other. Still do. But how beautiful all of that was where we did not have hardly anything at all. You have nothing. You lack all of these material things. And you look back, that's a memory I have, is of us being young, married in college, with nothing else really. That's not a physical pleasure. It's a complete lack of anything physical being there, but that's a joyful memory. 
Some of you look back, and when I said think about one of your greatest memories, you're probably thinking of when you were with a person who you truly loved very dearly, and you had nothing. You could be sitting on the floor, eating off of a cardboard box, but rejoicing in that time. Because we're not made to simply pursue physical pleasures. There's no joy in those things. And so here Jesus says this to him, saying, For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of things which he possesseth, And then he's going to explain this out through a parable. He spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. Isn't this a great problem to have? We're saying, look at this. Everything's growing great. He's got an abundance. He's not going, I need a little bit more. He's saying, I have more than I need. He's got more than he needs when everybody else is struggling. He has all of it. Verse 18, and he said, this will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. So his conclusion for I have more than I need, I'm going to tear down a perfectly good barn and build a bigger one. Because I just need more space for all of my things. And I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. He tells the story of this man who who has all of it. He has everything in the world that he can need. So much he's, he's tearing down barns to build bigger ones. But yet the man continues to neglect his soul telling himself that he has time to get his soul right. He says, he says, self, just like Solomon did at the beginning, self, look at everything that I have. You have so much. You have far more than you need. Take ease. Drink. Be merry. Relax. Ease up and take the time. You have so much. You'll, you'll never want for anything else. So just take ease, O soul. You have nothing to worry about. But who of any of us Who here could simply say that we know the exact date and time and situation where the Lord is going to say, your soul is required of you, where that mortgage is going to be called in? Not a single one of us knows. He found great comfort in, look at everything that I have. I have all of these pleasures. I have all of these materials. I have all this wealth. Surely I have nothing over to to be concerned. And here comes here, here we see God saying unto him, Thou fool, this night, not when you're 50, not when you're 70, not when you're 25, this very night your soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? His soul would be provided of him, and he, because of the neglect of his soul, was found, he's found bankrupt. He has nothing there to offer. This is where the pursuit of pleasure, the pursuit of material things, where Solomon is absolutely making it clear it is futile and it is meaningless because have we not been made with more than just a body? Many of us will take great care over our bodies to eat the right foods, to to drink the right things, to structure our diet in such a way, to physically uh, work out and to exercise muscles, to produce great physical health, often at the neglect of our own souls, that which will actually continue. Because we can diet, 
we can work out, but our bodies are going to deteriorate. There is a point where it's just not going to work anymore. But the soul is not going away. And as Jesus has said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose your soul? Solomon is describing it, and he says it's meaningless, it's futile. There's no point, there's no value in these things. And I want to just, in the very last minute, I said closing 10 minutes ago, and I sort of meant it. Pair what we see as we go through Ecclesiastes with what we studied out in the book of Philippians, of joy and gospel partnership, of finding actual contentment in Christ, of rejoicing through suffering. Does this sound like Solomon is suffering through things as he's going through all of this? He's experiencing these great things, but is he in turmoil over them? He's going through all of this. He is experiencing what we would say, oh, these are all the greatest pleasures of the world. It's what we read in 1 John of the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. He has all of these things, and he's finding himself to be empty. And notice, he's vexed by it. This is why I would say he is greatly grieved because he looks at it all and says, I'm not getting what I thought out of this. I thought this was going to bring me joy and peace and contentment, but oh my goodness, I'm vexed. The wisest man that ever lived vexed by it in his spirit because God was not a part of this pursuit. What a, a both encouragement, but yet also a caution for us that we always keep God as the very forefront of these things where our attention is to be upon the things of God rather than a wholehearted pursuit after the things that we simply experience now and enjoy pleasure from. Because again, not all pleasure is bad. God has designed us to be able to enjoy pleasure. And with that, do you take great pleasure and joy in, in enjoying and experiencing the things of God the same way that you would a physical pleasure? Because that's what's promised to us in the gospel is joy. Not restlessness. The work is done. All has been fulfilled. We rest in Christ. No longer restless. And that is a beautiful hope and a beautiful truth. Let's pray. God, we thank you. Um, just this morning, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the incredible encouragement that it is to us that we can simply rest and understanding the counter to what has been outlined here in these 11 verses of seeing this, this testimony of a pursuit of purely the physical pleasures of the things that are often thrown in our face that we are so many times seduced into conforming to, that we seek after these things as if that is how you've made us. But God, we know as your people that you have called us to a pursuit of you, a pursuit of of righteousness and holiness, and we completely understand that any of these things are only made possible with the accompanying work of the Spirit, that your Spirit brings us along the way, and that because of all that you have done, we have the ability to even know who it is that you are, to truly trust in you, to be able to experience the fruit of the promise and the inheritance that you've given. God, we, so many of us here, we look forward to the day of being before you seated on your throne and as we experience all that heaven is i pray that we would look forward to the experience of looking upon the very face of god rather than considering what my mansion is to look like or what what the streets are to look like or all of these other physical things that we so often 
here, but that it would truly be a desire to look upon the very face of God in all of your glory and all of your majesty the way that you truly are, that that would be the desire of our heart, that that would be the orientation of our life, that that would be that thing which we so aggressively pursue, even in this life, that we would continue to know you more and more. And what a beautiful thing that that is. God, I pray that for each and every one of us that we would be able to be convicted perhaps of pursuits that are not glorifying to you, of pursuits where maybe our time is so greatly spent pursuing the physical and the material and those things that we often trade at the expense of our soul, that we would abandon those things and that we would simply take greater care over our soul than just the physical. For we know our soul extends far beyond our time here within this body. God, I pray for all of us that are here this morning that that your word would take root in each and every one of us, that it would, by your spirit, continue to grow, and that it would dramatically change the way in which we live and the way that we love one another, but ultimately the way that we grow our affections to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.